This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. The one constant in the IRB world is change. In the next two podcasts, we will be talking with a few experts about a shift in human subjects research to big data, mobile devices and apps, social media, and pervasive sensing. These are very interesting and promising new modes of science, but they are also really challenging from an ethical perspective. How does an IRB review a study which tracks a subject wearing a camera for an entire week or tracks their movement for a month? Camille Nebaker, director of the Connected and Open Research Ethics Initiative, has a head start on answering questions like these. Camille is an assistant professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Nebaker is affiliated with the Divisions of Behavioral Medicine and Global Health in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health. She also holds an adjunct faculty appointment with the San Diego State University Graduate School of Public Health and is an affiliated investigator with the UC San Diego Research Ethics Program. Dr. Nebaker is project director and principal investigator for the Connected and Open Research Core initiative and Project BRIC, Building Research Integrity and Capacity. I read that one of the key aims of Core is helping researchers and IRBs ethically evaluate mobile health and MISST technologies. So in that regard, I have a few questions for you. First, can you tell us a little bit about CORE and how it came about? Well, CORE came about, it's, it's basically been about a three-year exploration in this area when I was initially contacted by my colleagues in behavioral medicine who were using wearable sensors um, to observe how people behave in their real-life environment. And so one of their objectives is to um, objectively measure physical activity and sedentary behavior in real life and not relying on self-report or observations made in a laboratory. So they asked participants, and these were healthy volunteers that they recruited from Craigslist and other sources, to wear a wearable camera that faces outward and it records what that person sees in about seven second intervals. They also asked the participants to wear a mobile GPS, global positioning system on their waist, along with an accelerometer so that they could see whether that person was moving or not. And so they called me because they knew I had a long time relationship with the Institutional Review Board and they were having difficulty getting their studies approved. And these studies were, it wasn't just one study, there were several studies and they were funded by the National Institutes of Health. And so they said, what are we doing? What can we do? And then they started showing me what the data looked like. Uh, so the IRB ran into uh, an issue with reviewing these technologies because they hadn't seen it before and CORE was built in response to a need to provide some resources for IRBs that also encounter the same technologies. Basically, so the, the MIST acronym stands for Mobile Imaging, Pervasive Sensing, Social Media, 
and location tracking technologies. And that basically is an umbrella term for all of these technologies that my colleagues were using. And so recognizing that there was quite a gap between the research that was taking place and what the IRBs understood about the technologies, being that I'm on the IRB, I thought, how can we bridge this gap and help IRBs to review these kinds of studies in a way that's consistent and that helps them do their job? So that's how the Connected and Open Research Ethics program got started. So at, at the beginning, what were some of the key ethical issues or, or hurdles that you found in the review process? Well, we actually did an analysis of eight case studies of eight protocols that were UCSD protocols, and they included one or several of these devices. And we have five institutional review boards here at this campus, and what we found was inconsistency across the different reviews that were taking place. But one of the things that really jumped out for the IRBs was what about the people who are standing in close proximity to the participant who's wearing a camera? So now the, the research record will include people who are not research participants and who haven't given permission. And so there was a lot of debate about uh, under what circumstances would a person in the, in, the, in the vicinity have an expectation to consent to be part of a research So now we have innocent bystanders perhaps in the research process. Exactly, but in, in reality, you think about when you're walking around in, in your day to day, how many people are taking pictures of you that you don't know a thing about. So that's kind of happening in, in our real life right now. But when it's a research study, should there be different expectations and different sets of permissions? And so in this case, the IRB is now trying to protect a person that's not a human subject. And we don't have rules to guide how that should happen or what that should look like. So that's one of the big key factors that we want to start exploring is what are the expectations of the public or in a private home, in you know, a, in, a, in a workplace meeting, those kind of things. Yeah, that seems like a substantial new risk that appears with these new technologies. What, what sort of management practices have you seen to, to mitigate that kind of risk happening? And these things, you know, there's not a lot of SenseCam research going on, but around the world there are people doing work with SenseCams and the IRBs are, are responding in many different ways. A little technological background here. This is a good example of the kind of research the CORE initiative addresses. Many people have not encountered SenseCams yet, but they have been part of human subjects research for a few years now. A sense cam is simply a wearable camera. It's a small box about the size of the palm of your hand. You typically wear a sense cam on a lanyard around your neck, but you can clip it anywhere, really, and it takes photos constantly of everything you are doing and seeing. This sounds very invasive, of course, but sense cams are a powerful tool for connecting daily life and health conditions. They provide the kind of data that makes the next generation of social and behavioral research possible. SenseCams have even been tested as a way to alleviate memory loss in patients with Alzheimer's disease. So at one institution, um, the IRB asked the investigator to send all of the images captured on the SenseCam, which if you record one week of time, the person will have about 30,000 images stored in the camera. So they asked the, the PI to um, blur any body part that was not of the subject. 
And so instead of trying to figure out, well, they didn't have resources to do that efficiently, so they outsourced it to Mechanical Turk. So now you've taken a research record that that could have been protected in-house and now sent it out across unprotected, you know, methods to get it to be compliant or be asked for. But they're also within the the MIST acronym pervasive sensing, social media, and tracking. Are there any additional uh, risks or data management or confidentiality issues particular to any of those uh, research modalities that you've seen? I think one one thing to, to um, talk about here is that most of my colleagues who are using these technologies are social and behavioral scientists, okay. and they're working with people that are not patients, and none of this data is going into, well, at least for the most part, it's not going into a health record, so it's not protected by the HIPAA regulations. And so, so we're collecting personal health data not protected health data, but personal health data without having a set of regulations to help guide how we store and manage that. And I think one of the interesting things that I've observed is that the GPS data contains incredibly granular data about your every movement throughout your space and time. So it can be considered very, very personal. When you put a geographic information system overlay on top of those coordinates, you can see exactly where that person has been, all the patterns of their day. But we don't have any guidelines to tell us how to store that kind of data. Yes. So it seems like a lot of these risks that you've encountered boil down to um, an increased sense of invasiveness in the research process between the researcher and participant. How do you consent in that context? Uh, is, Is consent perhaps a way that uh, some of these risks can be overcome and that the consent process might be able to enhance communication between the, the researcher and the participant and better establish expectations? Yeah, and I think this is the, a really important key feature. There's so much we can learn from this type of data. And the more we are able to understand about people and how they move through, through life, we can create interventions that are tailored much to that person's needs. And so, you know, even with social media, people are able to identify HIV hotspots based on tweets. And so people are giving information out. And I think informed consent is a a really critical part to this because, you know, when you think about downloading MyFitnessPal and there are all of these terms of use and and legal agreements that we just click immediately, I agree. The informed consent process for researchers is an opportunity to educate the public and and to break these things down into, um, you know, having a meaningful conversation, showing them what the data looks like, talking about how they're going to protect it, and making it a, making it a meaningful learning experience. And I think this could really be a huge benefit for the public that is, you know, capable of providing a huge amount of data that can be incredibly helpful. Are there any new consent practices that you're seeing emerge around mobile health technologies because it seems in this case that the old model of two people sitting down with a very large stack of paper in front of them and filing through a consent document is not really what you're describing here but more of an interactive conversation. So there's a lot going on in this mobile health space, and I'm only looking at one one piece of it. So there's a lot with Apple Research Kit using e-consent processes, um, using the telephone to communicate this kind of information, which I have little experience with. I mean, I've observed some of those technologies and and how that consent process is being um, 
basically tiered so that people can see a little bit of information and, and access more information if they want it. Okay. Now, that's happening basically individually by a person by themselves making a decision about complex information. But I think if there is an opportunity to engage with the public and show them what the data looks like, there, there's going to be room for, for improvement. And I think we're just at such a beginning phase of this. One of the things that we're looking at right now is is IRB approved consent documents and, and talking with people in the community, people that are likely to be invited to participate in these studies and asking them what do they understand about the, the content in these documents that is approved and what, what would make it more meaningful to them. So we're doing basically formative research right now to better understand what might make that process better. So it sounds like this is the wave of the future. Are we, as IRBs, uh, should we expect to see more mobile health and mist-related research in the next few years? Well, we're, we're looking at NIH Reporter right now to see how many of these studies are going on presently, and, and I'm pretty I'm amazed at how many there are. And when I think about, you know, I, was, I had a conversation with Ivor Pritchard a few months ago, and I asked him if, you know, could he estimate about how many IRBs there are nationally, and it was close to 6,000. And I think about the struggles that we've had here with the IRB and the researchers just trying to get a grasp on this. We've been at it for three years, and we're just now finally getting to the point where we have some pretty decent standards of practice that we would like to share, not only with people within the UC community, but we need to share that information with people nationally so that each IRB independently isn't struggling with reinventing this wheel and hopefully we can develop some consistency and improve the efficiencies of IRBs that are working with this kind of technology. Is that something that uh, IRBs can access now? Do you have any any uh, published documents out there or any conversations that we can look to for advice? Yeah. So we published a paper in the Journal of Research Administration that was um, the results of the content analysis that we did on the eight protocols that we reviewed here. And so in that paper, we have examples of consent language and protocol language. So we're going to be taking that content and putting it up into the core forum. So we're creating a forum that would be accessible to IRBs. It would be accessible to uh, researchers, but we're just getting started. So our first um, attempt at gathering data was when we did focus groups at Public Responsibility in Medicine and Research's annual meeting in November. So the focus groups that we conducted there were basically to ask the IRB community, what could we build that would be most helpful to you? And so we're analyzing those transcripts right now. The next stop we'll make is at the Society for Behavioral Medicine's annual meeting in Washington, D.C. in March, and we will be doing basically a design thinking workshop with behavioral scientists to ask them what would be most meaningful and can you share information that has worked for you. So it's a network um, and a basically a stakeholder engagement process that we're using to populate the best practices. And so we're just building the prototype right now, so we don't have a lot to share, but we're gathering it, and then we're going to be asking researchers to provide us with a lot of their consent and protocol documents. Uh, this is all excellent news. Uh, we'll continue to, to look to CORE 
for advice as we continue to encounter all these new technologies. Thanks so much. And we have a network that we're growing, and right now we have about 40 people involved, and it represents IRB members, researchers, privacy experts, and we really want the community to grow because the stronger our network is, the better the core is going to be. So it's just been fascinating for me, Michael, and being a long-term IRB person, recognizing how impossible it's going to be to not only catch up but stay current yes we really need a resource like the core that is not just populated by i mean we're going to have technologists involved in this people that know things that i certainly don't know Mm -hmm. that really help us determine what is the best practice for, for securing gps data please check the primer website and the description of this podcast for links to core and the core network This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.